ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. First up, an apology. I'm really sorry the podcast hasn't been regular over the last couple of weeks. I actually have a day job. I wish, I wish I did this full time, but my hours have gone up at my day job and I have like half an hour in between clients to like do anything like grab a coffee go to the toilet so unfortunately i haven't really had time to do a good job of podcasting but luckily this morning one of my clients has cancelled his internet's gone down so i actually have the time to chat to you guys about something cool i am catherine i am always your host str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.co.uk if you have been enjoying the frankenstein season then buy my book the Frankenstein the full context you can get it on Amazon or if you go on my website straighttalkenglish.co.uk forward slash books you can just click click the little picture and that's tremendous if you like what I do click on support the project you can drop me a little donation every penny counts thank you ever so much between me and you we might reduce my hours to the fact I might be able to make regular content also another apology if you hear a weird noise in the background my pet gerbils have decided they want to destroy everything they want to watch the world burn and unfortunately you can't ask them to be quiet when you're recording so if you hear a weird nibbling noise don't worry it's not the creeping sound of your own dread it is four very happy little gerbils the title the label on the tin is the monster now he is not called the monster in the book he is always creature he is always like not really given a name but he has become commonly known as the monster this reminds me before i even start i've got to tell you about this i had an argument with a 12 year old once about who or what was frankenstein and i was like the guy that made the creature is frankenstein the creature is like the monster and then she was like but if someone says they're going as a frankenstein for halloween and i'm like well that's not correct and she was like no you're wrong i know how it's used and there's me sitting there like i've actually read the book and you're 12 (laughs) so to correct my student from a couple of years ago frankenstein is the dude the monster is the thing he makes now monster means something totally different to people 100 150 years ago the most immediate thing you'd think about is the body politic now if you've read any spectacles think about the line we are all members of one body and it's that idea but extended to all of society thomas hobbes mostly talked about it in leviathan he said that for Bayard created that great leviathan called a commonwealth or state in latin but he spelled it latin civitas which is but an artificial man though of great stature and strength and the natural for whose protection and defense it was intended and in which the sovereignty is an artificial soul as giving life and motion to the whole body the magistrates and other officers of judicature judicature i've never been able to pronounce that and execution artificial joints reward and punishment by which fastened to the seat of the sovereignty every jointed member is moved to perform his duty are the nerves that do that same in the body natural the wealth and riches of all the particular members are the strengths salius populi the people's safety its business counsellors by whom all things needful for it to know are suggested unto it are the memory equity and laws an artificial reason and will 
Concord, health, sedition, sickness and civil war, death. Lastly, the pacts and covenants by which the parts of this body politic were at first made, set together and united resemble that fiat. Seriously, I can't stop giggling about the name of the car, but no, 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 it's not what he means. Or let us make man, pronounced by God in the creation. So, if all of our state is one human, is one human body, then... If we think of the monster as like a deformed body, a body that hasn't come out correctly, then that's a country that isn't working in harmony. Blimmin' Edmund Burke, he keeps cropping up. Edmund Burke is the one that made this completely, completely clear. He said that a bad state is a species of political monster which has always ended by devouring those who produced it. So floating around in this time of the Enlightenment, the association with Monster is an implicit criticism of the political system. Who took that up? Of course, it's Mary Wollstonecraft with her long-standing beef with Edmund Burke. She said, during the French Revolution, it was the nobles of the French court who showed that the state had become a monster. Wollstonecraft said, man appears either a hideous monster, a devouring beast, or a spiritless reptile without dignity or humanity, sanguinary, like bloody tortures, insidious poisonings and dark assassinations have alternately exhibited a race of monsters in human shape, the contemplation of whose ferocity chills the blood and darkens every enlivening expectation of humanity, but we ought to observe, to reanimate hopes of benevolence, that the perpetration of these horrid deeds has arisen from a despotism in the government, which reason is teaching us to remedy. So, yeah, she's actually, Mary Shelley's actually built on this, right? The monster is capable of terrible things, but through education, learning, focusing on the rational, he betters himself. But for Mary Wollstonecraft, the evils of the government are what drove the French people to act brutally, right? She's talking about the terror and the French Revolution. And the same way it's Victor and his evil quite and quite evil that creates the monster and therefore he is responsible for the monster's actions it's just like cause and effect political thing of course this is not necessarily what's bothering people at this point when the writing we have the luddites now luddite is an absolutely tremendous insult to give someone by the way the sort of person who's like i'm so angry at my laptop right now i want to smash it is being a Luddite. So literally, we had skilled craftsmen in the north of England were replaced by machines. Actually, that sounds way cool if like you just made like a robot carpenter. But no, industrial revolution, big factories are opening up. Why employ one expensive skilled carpenter when you can just have like one person and ten machines? This naturally outraged a lot of people especially like you've been honing your skills for like 30 years and then someone's like i've made a machine that can do that they would these craftsmen would go into factories and attempt to smash up the machines and the new buildings the reason they're called luddites is because allegedly the person that led this movement was called ned ludd l-u-d-d but we don't really know much about him or even if he existed though there is a really good pub in nottingham called the ned ludd which i recommend by the way <laughs> free pub recommendations with 
as your context, you're like, buy one, get one free. Obviously, this is the age before any kind of like civil rights or people thinking about others that much. So manufacturers would literally just get guns and shoot these protesters without warning. So you're going to lead to the Luddites like having secret meetings and like running military drills. Not necessarily aiming to kill people, but sort of to protect themselves. The army would get called in pretty rapidly. And if the protesters were arrested, they were treated incredibly harshly. Luckily, the Luddites had a powerful voice to defend them. That powerful voice, everyone's favourite, Lord Byron. <laughs> so because Lord Byron was a lord, right, he was allowed to speak in the House of Lords and he made one speech ever, since he wasn't especially interested in it, but he's like, I'll do it once. He argued that if the upper classes called them a mob, then we should all remember that a mob can actually represent the voice of the people. In true Byron style, his speech was nigh on incomprehensible because of the language he used. As far as I can tell, it's like, oh yes, verily, the mob stars. But he actually wrote a poem about it because Byron. These rascals perhaps maybe take them to robbing. The dogs, to be sure, have got nothing to eat. So if we can hang them for breaking a bobbin. Twill save all the government's money and meat. Men are, more, men are more easily made the machinery. Stockings fetch better prices than lives. Gibbets on Sherwoods would heighten the scenery, showing how commerce, how liberty thrives. Like, seriously, robbing and bobbin, like, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a desperate rhyme, but we'll give him that. Luckily, these guys, like, they did listen a little bit, at least. And it is quite a compelling argument, to be honest. I actually found this in the Into the Socialist Worker magazine when I was writing the book. And I'm not sure how reputable this source is, but it is actually really kind of compelling, if we're being honest. Given the public activities of the Luddites, Mary Shelley may well have seen in her scientifically produced creature at least a reflection of the emerging and, if it did, but know it all, powerful working class. A reflection of the emerging and, if it did but know it, all-powerful working class. As the author of the novel, or perhaps as a woman, she does not find her creature as obnoxious as do most of the other characters in the story. As one commentator has said, the, mon the monster is the nicest person in the book. The creature himself is fearsome to behold, strong and inclined to violence if frustrated. What he seeks is love and understanding, very human requirement, and not one we would associate with unfeeling and relentless capitalism in the system. Then there is science and scientific endeavour. It's Frankenstein's ill-considered attitude to science which allows him to invent something he comes very much to regret. Rather like later scientific innovations such as the nuclear bomb and chemical and biological weaponry. Is science in the hands of the bourgeoisie, the middle class, another matter to be feared? Is the bourgeoisie always an irresponsible and immature class only capable of acting responsibly in the, in the realm of profit pursuit where of course anything goes? And then there are the Luddites, not mentioned as such in the novel 
Marvel, but then neither are the bourgeoisie or the working class. Is it from the Luddites that the initial fear underpinning the story originated? I speculate, of course. But the Luddites were not typically working class as we understand that class now. They were an early manifestation of working class protest. You might even have seen them as having aspects of terrorism in their behaviour. They blackened their faces, cross-dressed, smashed machinery and burned down factories. So like, blackening your face so you can't be seen at night and cross-dressing as a means of disguise. They doubtless instilled fear in the bourgeoisie. But who exactly were they? What did they want? Why did they behave in such a frightening and theatrical manner? And yeah, 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 we're like, we always have to check the bias. Obviously, that was from the socialist workers. So they're going to see everything in terms of class struggle, Marxism, yeah, 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 the monster represents this. But it does, it does make a lot of sense. We know that Shelley and Percy Shelley and Byron were very into this sympathy. It does kind of work. Let's think about the sublime as well, because the monster, if we argue it, is the anti-sublime. His the vision of sublimity, according to Peter Brooks, is both fulfilled and undone by the sight of a superhuman shape that comes bounding towards Frankenstein over the ice. The monster appears to be both born of nature and the supernatural, and as such he puts normal measurements and classifications into question. In particular, he puts into question the meaning of looking, of optics, as the faculty in science most commonly used to judge meanings in the phenomenal world. And he does! He does! He breaks this up. So you've got these long passages, the Alps, I climbed the Alps, the Alps are so nice, Mont Blanc, blah 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 blah. And then the monster shows up and is like, hi, and it breaks it all. Everything about him is about breaking. He breaks things by his presence. He might represent an angry Luddite breaking something. He might represent the breaking of this idea of the sublime. But one thing we can work out from what Shelley intended the monster to be is by looking at his reading list. Now I always found this really weird when I was reading Frankenstein. Like halfway through it just goes into like book reviews basically when the monster's telling his narrative it's like let me tell you about my favorite books it's like i would love to do that on this podcast just be like right let's have a breakdown let me tell you about a book i'm reading but that would seem a little disjointed as to a lot of my rambles and it also seems a bit disjointed in the book the first thing he reads on his reading list is paradise lost this is a huge huge epic poem about the fall of adam and eve and believe me there is so much scholarship arguing that Paradise Lost and Frankenstein are a parallel of each other. And I literally may do a special episode about this because if I start trying to talk about this, we are going to just like be here all day. It's going to be like a 10 hour spectacular. You will have gone to bed. I will have gone to bed. Half it will be snoring. But just remember, he reads Paradise Lost, John Milton, Adam and Eve. And this is what we need to take. Like the monster, Adam and Eve are left far away and rejected by their creator. So when Adam and Eve are kicked out of paradise because Eve has a little snaky snack and eats an apple, they are rejected. They have been artificially created by God, but their actions have condemned them. However, the monster has done nothing wrong. He just exists. But regardless of the actions that are taken, they both end up rejected by their creator. But Paradise Lost 
list also includes the prequel <laughs> to Adam and Eve, in which Satan is cast out of heaven after he tries to conquer it. His excess of pride and self-belief, hubris, leads to his downfall. He thinks, I'm going to take over heaven, I'm going to do a good job of this, and he gets kicked out. Sound a little bit like Victor, maybe? Yes, it does. Excess of pride, I can do this, I can make this perfect being, goes wrong, ends up getting murdered. I mean, I've just like skipped the whole book, but you know what I'm talking about. Is the monster Adam from Adam and Eve? Because in the story of Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, Adam's lonely. He goes to God, says, I want to have a girlfriend. It's a bit lonely over here. And God makes a woman from his rib. Sounds a little bit like the monster, doesn't it? Is the monster Adam who wants to have a mate create? for him in the same process yeah yeah no like all of the characters have parallels and like seriously I, I will try and do a special episode of on this over the Christmas break I hopefully will have time <laughs> yeah that's just what you need to take away from this William Godwin on the other hand remember this whole theme of this series his influence on his daughter his little like tea time table chats are really 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 important Godwin talked about Paradise Lost a lot he said the devil quite a good guy like all in favour of the devil here he rebelled against his maker because he did not agree with the inequality in heaven according to William Godwin all right fair enough when he was punished by God he bore it stoically yes I am tormented but you know what I did the right thing and for Godwin the character of Satan is the admirable one he's the one that rebels he's the one that does the right thing and he takes his punishment like a proverbial man similarly the monster is probably the most articulate and sympathetic character in Frankenstein. But is the monster black? <laughs> Sentences I never thought I'd be saying. Right, 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 right. The post-colonial scholar Gayatri Spivak is the one that has spearheaded this view. Okay, okay, I was saying that a bit clickbaity because the monster isn't really given a skin colour. We just say it's like sallow or unhealthy or something. But when the monster is on his knees looking up at the old man whose cottage he's been stalking he's doing the exact same pose as a very famous print medal image of an enslaved black man on his knees with his hands in chains if you go to a museum of london docklands there's a huge display with this image which led to me telling a bunch of randoms about if Frankenstein was black. We're not saying Frankenstein is enslaved. We're not saying he's a colonised person. We are saying, however, Mary and Percy Shelley were well into abolition. They, unsurprisingly, were like, owning another human being, it's not that great. That imagery of an enslaved person begging, pretty familiar image to them, one they would know a lot of. Spivak says, this particular narrative, um, the story of Frankenstein also launches a thoroughgoing critique of the 18th century European discourses on the origins of society through Western Christian man. Shelley's point is that social engineering should not be based on pure theoretical or natural science reason alone, which is her implicit critique of the utilitarian vision of an engineered society. Yet, all these people, these hideous 19th century racists who I was talking about a lot in my Sign of Four series, who try to classify people being like, this type of person, they're the best. This type of person, they're the worst. This is like the scale of people based on their race. No, 
that is not good we should not just be looking at things scientifically looking at things to engineer a society no no we've got to find a better way no 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 actually spivak to be honest she makes a good point the monsters come out of nowhere like an artificial country or an idea of group of people her moral seems to be if you're following this spivak line that to try and create a society in a way that seems perfect never ends well the term monster if we're talking about other monsters the monster that was in the news at the time of her writing was a metaphorical one it was a slave revolt in the caribbean we also want to think about the fact this is one of these words i cannot say an epistolary novel told in the first person through letters now this format is popular in some other texts like all the samuel richardson books she was reading but it's also frequently the form of former slave narratives so to further the abolitionist cause a lot of these books were published someone would interview a former slave and write down their life story and get it published to raise awareness of course my number one favorite person i fangirl over so much alauda equiano his book is insanely good it's 200 years old but i really really recommend it because a lot of these enslaved people or formerly enslaved people couldn't read or write the ghostwriter, the interviewer, would write down their life story and add a little frame story at the beginning and the end. So this is my interview with Bob. He is now a free man. Let's read it. And then at the end, it's like, that was Bob's story. If you are interested in him, you can meet him at this meeting and donate some money. That form is proper recognisable if you are into that sort of thing. So if you are, say, a group of poets who are proper into abolition, that form is familiar to you. One more thing from his reading list. It's going to be quite a long episode, I think. I'll say, but I've time to edit it. Volney's Ruins of... Of empire felix reads it aloud and the monster hears it it's kind of a history book kind of not in the way a lot of these like history books are not very subtle critiques of our own society volley writes about ancient empires but he's using it to make the point that liberty and equality are the highest forms of society uh, look i have to read this to you because it's so unnecessarily wonderfully dramatic solitary ruins sacred tombs ye mouldering and silent walls all hail to you i address my invocation while the vulgar shriek from your aspect with a secret terror my heart finds in the contemplation a thousand delicious sentiments a thousand admirable recollections pregnant i may truly call you with useful lessons with pathetic and irresistible advice to the man who knows how to consult you oh my god it goes on for like five more pages but we've got anxious love of liberty is an important quote in there and also a one cent one word sentence which is just tombs Oh man, like, this is when people just went mad with their punctuation. And like, what the monster gets out of this is that the happy family inside the cottage, all nice and warm, are talking about equality. And the monster is cowering outside, feeling bad about himself. Most of Volney's argument in this book in favour of human equality rests on the assumption that all people, assuming you're from the West, are civilised. 
and therefore can work together as opposed to savages savages he means to use people who are non-white or like primitive tribal societies or people he doesn't like very much <laughs> he just uses it for everyone and that's the point where the monster is starting to think am i a savage am i a civilized person would we consider ourselves savages would we consider ourselves civilized people this is where the reader is supposed to start questioning it as well is the monster a savage well quote unquote savage um well yeah yeah in the sense that he's not part of a society he's sort of running around i assume he's made clothes out of leaves or something but on the other hand if we're using this word savage as a category of like borderline caveman nothing going on in there and it is mostly used in texts of this time in an extremely racist way then the monster isn't the monster is intelligent eloquent he consumes and debates really complicated ideas but according to the rest of the world he's not a civilized being let's think about civilized and uncivilized beings a little bit more there is a famous celebrity story featuring a celebrity wolf boy <laughs> yes and this could easily have been something that mary was thinking about both in london when she came back from her trip and also in germany because uh, she traveled near this area so it's plausible that she heard this story one day in 1726 george I of england was hosting a dinner party near hamelin in germany where some local folks presented a young boy of about 12 to 15 years old the townspeople had found the boy in the previous year in the Hertzwald forest all alone and nude except for an old shirt collar that still hung round his neck. It appeared he'd been sending for fending for himself for quite some time. A thick bushy mop of hair sat atop his head. His green eyes scanned the details of the room as he scuffled up to the king. He lacked any verbal and social skills and to the men appeared wild. He was brought back to England to live in Kensington Palace and he became a big old celebrity. He ate with his hands. He didn't like to wear clothes. He slept on the floor instead of in bed. He learned how to walk upright he was very like raucous and feral and this is the kind of like fascination that a lot of people have in this like georgian era with can we civilize a savage man the, the king has taken this wolf boy into his house and is kind of exploiting him and using him as a novel too but he's also kind of trying to make him a bit better a bit happier of course because everything is awful all the time peter the wolf boy probably had a disorder called pitt hopkins syndrome it causes physical and mental impairments so it's more likely this poor like disabled child was left in a forest but regardless peter was on this borderline of included and excluded from society he was inside he was outside oh it's everything is awful all the time let's talk about plutarch that's also on the monsters reading list plutarch all right so plutarch's lives he's also called parallel lives right 24 famous romans are profiled next to 24 ancient greeks so it goes roman greek roman greek roman greek 
shape and it's supposed to help you like classify and compare these famous men mary shelley and percy shelley loved this book and all of the figures in it are quite like independent and famous and also the fact that the monster reads this independently and alone it means he absorbs a really specific idea of what it's like to be a person which coincidentally is william godwin's idea of being a person being an individual ultimately we can only rely on ourselves of course. Honestly, I tried to read some of this. I really did try and read some of Plutarch's lives, but it is just like interminably solid. It's like digging a tunnel through quicksand. So I gave up. Something that is a little bit more readable, but also incredibly annoying. Like, honestly, I tried to read it, but I hated all of the main characters. And I was like, God, I just hate all of you. Is The Sorrows of Young Vertha. Vertha. Werther, Werther, oh gosh, by Johann Goethe, was the book that William and Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft were halfway through reading when she died. After Wollstonecraft died, Godwin wrote this biography of her, which was like, my wife is so amazing, I'm going to use her as a symbol for the Enlightenment, and deliberately made a parallel with the sorrows of young Bertha in this book. She, Mary Wollstonecraft, was frequently declared to be the female version of Bertha, but Mary couldn't ever share that book with her mother, so it's kind of this disappointment that she's always disconnected from this Bertha figure. The effect of the story on the monster is incredibly powerful, according to the scholar Roswitha Burrick she says the effect also intensified the feeling of alienation once he'd realized that his hideous appearance was the primary cause for his rejection by the human race including his creator on one hand he identified with Bertha as the voyeur of domestic happiness because um Bertha oh I'll just pause for a sec Bertha falls in love with this woman who's like married to someone else but her husband is like besties with him and he becomes this third wheel of just sort of watching them be happy and going oh and then he dies so on one hand he identified with bertha as the voyeur of domestic happiness and on the other hand he disassociated himself from him unlike bertha who destroyed the blissful existence of those he loved through his self-centered nature and his desire to possess what belonged to another man the creature demanded a mate who was just as hideous as himself and posed no threat to humankind bertha indulges his own happiness and or sorrows yet he walks around a lot in nature thinking about sadness like like i said he's really annoying while the creature thinks about the welfare of the human community since he will be excluded from any human intercourse but knows that certain wants will be forever alive in his own bosom he is willing to remove himself from humankind and create his own race of natural species in the paradisiacal like paradise setting of another continent we know why Bertha was unlucky in love because he was just awful and also because he was in love with someone who was unobtainable we have this image of a triangular relationship coming up again and again and again in frankenstein we've got victor and elizabeth on their wedding night and then the monster shows up i mean honestly i am not married i would not really want 
the monsters show up. That would be very off-putting. And Mary was in a triangular relationship as well. She was always tra- always travelling with her husband and her sister. So her and Percy had presumably the like exclusively romantic relationship and the sister was there kind of as a chaperone but also Shelley's bestie I've mentioned it before there's a lot of rumors that they were also sleeping together and let's face it they probably were but this triangular situation in Vertha just seems to be so important to understanding the invasions of the monster and yeah he breaks things I said this he breaks Victor and Elizabeth's relationship by murdering her okay that's pretty breaky and does mary break something i mean her sister she always had issues with jealousy with her sister like can you just leave us alone so i can hang out with my boyfriend but is mary the one breaking it does she recognize that her sister and percy shelley had something good going don't know this is just speculation is the monster gay (laughs) i couldn't resist that's actually like a title heading in my book is the monster gay well no he wants a female companion so we're assuming he's hetero and mary shelley's views on sexuality aren't like publicly stated but she's mates with byron who is i would only describe what i put in my book as openly bisexual but i think some of the uh the comments i've read in biographies are like notoriously bisexual outrageously bisexual like Byron was well known for getting on with men, women and his sister and the fact that she was mates with Byron makes me think that she didn't hold any prejudice which is quite unusual for the time. Could she have been thinking about Byron's sexuality being exposed to the public which it it was and that's what led him to have to leave England. Maybe maybe I mean he is an outsider he's been in this like self-induced exile out of England since the fact he liked dudes became public but this is where the monster takes on a life of his own a lot of experts in queer theory in gay history and fields like that which i am not an expert on at all have made a link between homosexuality and the monster i really like this actually this is in the new york times this journalist said when you're gay and growing up feeling like a hideous misfit fully conscious that some believe your desires to be wicked and want to kill you for them identifying with the monster is hardly a stretch a misunderstood beast finds solace in the solitude of the woods but seems to endlessly face the wrath of torch-bearing small-minded inhabitants in the world beyond yeah there is there's a lot to that on the other hand the fact that the monster gets involved in the bed in frankenstein's wedding night there's clearly some very sexual overtones there i mean it we know what is expected to happen in the bed on the wedding night and the monster has jumped in we could also argue that walton and frankenstein's friendship could be the start of a romantic relationship they're sort of looking at each other and being like oh if only i had a man to love and it could be the very start of a romantic relationship that we see there there aren't really any women in the book as i said last episode you've got justine and elizabeth's one thing in the prison but there aren't any other like female friendships this is a homosocial book a book with only one gender socializing 
and it's all about male friendships. Maybe the outsider in these relationships is actually Mary Shelley, and she listens to Percy and Byron's conversations on science in her introduction, but isn't included. She's the outsider. She's listening. The point is, like, I've said a lot of maybes, and I've said a lot of clickbaity things because I'm like, I don't know. The monster is supposed to be elusive, so I don't feel bad that I don't completely understand it. It's supposed to be elusive, mysterious, shadowy. You're supposed to be ambiguous about who is the victim, who is the villain. The monster kills people, but he himself is neglected and abused. Victor creates him and then abandons him without even naming him. That is so dehumanising to say the least. And properly like boy named it territory. He's supposed to be complex. He's supposed to reflect Godwin and Rousseau and also rubbish up the idea of the romantic sublime. Like I said, this is a book all about romanticism versus the enlightenment. He is also the one that has the most character development. Victor doesn't change. Victor is just annoying from the start to the finish. He doesn't really learn anything. He just feels sad about creating the monster rather than admits he makes a mistake. Whereas the monster comes from nothing, from being the kind of creature of the Boris Karloff films, to someone who's like, let me tell you my review of uh, Paradise Lot. And that's what makes him so intriguing. That's why the monster is so blimmin' awesome. Thank you for bearing with me. I'm sorry if this is a bit disjointed because I ran through what is now two episodes in one take. Realised about halfway through that I was like, oh my days, I'm talking too much. Hence my like sl slightly artificial pause in the middle. But thank you, dear listeners, for bearing with me. I am Catherine, I am your host, that was the Frankenstein season, I might have time to do a special on Paradise Lost, but we'll see how that goes, and I will be returning in the new year with The Inspector Calls Caesar. str 8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkenglish.co.uk if you like the Frankenstein season, buy the book, website forward slash books, website forward slash support the show drop me a donation thank you so 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 much for listening this has been an absolute slog and i could not have done it without you see you in january for an inspector calls